What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And this week, we have something really different for you. We're going to be talking logistics. We're going to be talking Revolutionary War era logistics, food, all kinds of stuff that I'm really into. If you know me, you know I like history and food. And Ricardo Herrera is going to be joining me this week to talk about his book, Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. Now, for a lot of you, you've probably heard of Valley Forge and the cold and the weather and how the army survived. Maybe you didn't know this story about this grand forage that occurred in the winter of 1778. I think you're going to like it. It is something really different to consider and thinking about how the soldiers really lived off the land. So without further ado, here's my friend Rick Herrera to talk about feeding Washington's army, surviving the Valley Forge winter of 1778. I'm really excited today to have uh, Ricardo Herrera on, visiting professor at the Army War College, who has really given us a fantastic book called Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. Rick, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Hey, John, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. And uh, greetings from California, from uh, very gray and dreary Pasadena. <laughs> yes, it's kind of... Interesting that it's gray and dreary. I'm, I think of Pasadena and I think of, you know, sunny all the time. But normally it is when I, I grew up around here, it's like rain. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I put this shirt on because I'm like, oh, it looks it looks like something I'd wear in California. So I did that. I did that for you. But well, uh, when we're when we're going to talk a bit about wintertime in Valley Forge and uh it's kind of funny to be wearing a shirt like this, but here we are. Um, Rick, when did this research really start for you and why did this research begin for you on this topic? Oh, sure. Oh, before I begin, a oh, uh, sure. little bit of boilerplate. Yeah. Nothing I say reflects the views of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, Department of Defense, the U.S. Army or the U.S. Army War College or anybody even remotely affiliated with them. So now I'm not in trouble. Good. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, it began as in, oh gosh, I want to say in 2010, when I was on the staff ride team at the Combined Arms Center at uh, Fort Leavenworth. And I was building a staff ride on the Philadelphia campaign and three days on the ground. And for the listeners, uh, watchers who don't know what a staff ride is uh, in mm -hmm. a thumbnail, it's essentially a the focus study of a battle or a campaign that takes place on the ground over which the campaign was fought over which the forces maneuvered and so we use the battlefield the campaign area really as our classrooms but also as primary documents for us to interrogate and ask what had happened and why what were the influences of the terrain the topography the weather all of these things and many more things rather on decision-making, leadership, uh, you name it. And so they're, they're a great deal of fun. They're great learning tools. 
it's a nice way to get away from the flagpole. People relax. They let their hair down. In my case, what little I have, and um, they, I find them, I find them incredibly effective. I did those for six years and thoroughly enjoyed it. Learned more than I could have ever conceived about my craft as a historian uh, by doing that. So a shout out to the staff ride team. You, you guys taught me a lot. But um, this was a staff ride that I was building for an outfit out of Fort Monmouth. And so I went there, uh, one of my colleagues, we reconned the area. And so when you do a, a Philadelphia campaign staff ride, you have to go to Valley Forge. Valley Forge is one of these mythic places in American history and American memory. So we get to Valley Forge and the challenge of Valley Forge is trying to introduce some kind of movement. Because if you think about it, and this is particularly so in the popular imagination, Valley Forge <clears throat> is a static place. It's stasis. And the, the story that we all grew up with, particularly if you watched uh, the Bugs Bunny cartoon, which I highly recommend that everyone do that. Mm -hmm. uh, ice cream trucks in the winter, wonderful. Yes. But um, it, it, the idea that we get is often of these valiant noble soldiers, bloody footprints. They're all standing around waiting in the winter, tr trying to ennoble themselves and trying to make us feel good about being Americans because we can suffer while the British are enjoying themselves in Philadelphia, doing what all 18th century armies should do in winter quarters, drink, gamble, and whore, among other things. And that really wasn't the truth. So while I was uh, standing in front, when I was standing by uh, Anthony Wayne's statue by the uh, Pennsylvania encampment, I recalled a book that I'd reviewed, Wayne Bodle's Valley Forge Winter, which is the academic work on the encampment. Uh, nobody's touched it yet came out over 20 years ago. In any case, I had recalled something about uh, Wayne writing about the uh, sustainment uh, actions. In other words, the, the things that the army had done to feed itself, to, to clothe itself. And so I thought, and I remember that Wayne had been on it. I dug into his sources. Then I started digging into primary sources, as well as uh, some of the relevant uh, secondary sources. All of this to build a stand, and that's literally the place of ground that you stand on as you discuss it and examine the terrain and all those pieces. And so what I did was gather enough evidence that I was, I was able to get an article out for Army History in 2011, which uh, very happily won an award. There was more material that I had that came out uh, as a second article in 2015, and that's on uh, Henry Lee's part in the actions down in Delaware, Maryland, and uh, uh, yeah, the Delmarva Peninsula, but basically uh, Delaware and Maryland. Got that published in the Journal of Military History. So you're familiar with the story. You have two, you have two chapters. You've got a, the beginnings of a book. Mm -hmm. A third chapter came out in 2022 on Washington's decision-making to go into Valley Forge, and that was put out by Army History, which does a fantastic job. So a, a mm -hmm. really have to compliment Brian Hawkinsmith and the staff there for what they've done. Uh, CMH has really done some superb work with this magazine. In any case, I started then seriously working on it about 2015-ish or so. Started doing uh, some, some very uh, heavy archival work, stuff that took me to uh, all, all across the US. So places ranging from the Clements out in Ann Arbor Museum 
the uh, Huntington out nearby San Marino, California. The, um, oh gosh, the uh, Military History Institute or, or Heritage and Education Center now at Carlisle, uh, Library of Congress, you name it, all up and down the, uh, the East Coast, hitting the relevant uh, archives. Went to um, Scotland and England, hit those archives as best I could to really tell the fuller story of what had taken place during during this operation. So it uh, took me several years, but I have to say that uh, it was probably the most enjoyable research and writing that I've ever done. I enjoy research and writing, but doing this book was just a blast. And I uh, really um, you know, can't, can't say enough about how much fun it was. Hmm. You can really tell when you read a book if the author is invested and has fun doing it. And you can tell with your writing that you're really heavily invested in this subject matter and that you've enjoyed writing it. It's it's just the kind of a thing that some people can click on and say, hey, this this author's really into this. They're not trying to meet a deadline. They are really into this kind of thing. And obviously there are deadlines you have to meet sometimes, but uh, you can really tell in the pages of this book. And uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know is that lead up to Valley Forge. We hear of the mythology of Valley Forge as you've gone over, but we don't know how Washington and his army have gotten there. Uh, what was that year of like 1777 like for uh, Washington's army? Um, well, for uh, folks who are familiar with uh, John Pancake's work, 1777, the year of the hangman, some ways that was an appropriate uh, title for the year. The uh, British Army had landed at Head of Elk. Uh, General, General uh, Sir William Howe had conceived of a drive against Philadelphia in order to bring the Continental Army into open field for a decisive battle. The Continentals, however, refused to play his game. You know, they're holed up in Morristown and the Watchung Mountains. They've got good defensive positions. And Washington, by now, has uh, pretty much learned that he will strike when it suits him. He understands, understood, that time, for the most part, was on his side. And so he's waging a war, if you will, almost of attrition, if not actually grinding down British lives, then grinding down British patience and time and effort and treasure. So Hal gets tired of this. Works with his brother, uh, uh, Admiral uh, Richard Viscount Howe, uh, Lord Howe, and they put together uh, uh, an amphibious operation. So his soldiers board ship, sail south, and they end up approaching up the Chesapeake Bay. You might you might wonder why not the Delaware? Well, the Delaware is a terrible place for ship navigation. And one of the things that I I, I had uh, gone into, or at least addressed uh, slightly. You know, mo most of the shipping channels lie along the Jersey shore. That means that they are within range of American artillery. Mm -hmm. The tides are powerful because the Delaware is an estuary. You think about the ability of a sailing ship and what happens if it doesn't have wind or the wind isn't strong enough and just how slow it will go and then proceeding in single file up this thing. The, the Delaware is a recipe for disaster. So the Chesapeake it is uh, good, good, uh, Good anchorages, places for deeper draft ocean-going vessels. The British land at uh, just south of Head of Elk and work their way 
northward, they'll get to uh, the head of the, the town of Elk uh, today, Elkton, Maryland, and um, try and raid as much as they can out of the magazine there. You know, the Continentals and the local militia had tried to spirit away as much as humanly possible that was in the warehouses, but they weren't able to get everything. And the British also go about destroying vessels that are tied up. Elk had also been a, an important uh, transshipment point during the colonial era because of its connection to roadways as well as waterways. So this is a really key point. But they'll uh, move on. The uh, Continental Light Infantry fights a delaying action at Cooch's Bridge in Delaware County. The sole battle in Delaware during the War for Independence. So go Delaware, all three counties. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll move on. There's maneuvering. Um, there's a standoff at um, uh, in the, what's called the Battle of the Clouds that's on fought on today's Immaculata University. And uh, mm -hmm. as both armies line up, the, uh, the Continentals and militia taking the high ground, the British below them, the heavens open up. And we all know the story about black powder. It doesn't function well when it's wet. Both armies stare at one another and they figure out, this isn't a good idea. Let's just go away. <laughs> so it's a draw. They march off. Um, <clears throat> later on, we get um, Anthony Wayne gets uh, gets humiliated at Paoli with uh, Sir Charles Gray's attack. Uh, and uh, Gray gets known as No Flint Gray because he, go he goes in. Uh, at the American camp with bayonet and saber only. He knows the Americans will fire at night, give away their positions. But uh, Wayne thoroughly humiliated when this happens. Uh, we'll later requ we'll request a court-martial to clear his name and get gain vindication. Fast forward to September 11th of 1777. Lined up on the banks of the, Delo of the uh, Brandywine Creek, Washington is expecting the British Army, which... Uh, which is which has been advancing, expecting an attack. Washington gets hit. Things are going well in his front. As was um, Washington's want, he did not pay much attention to his flanks. You know, and this is something that we saw at Long Island in 1776. He uh, had poor security on his left flank, and so uh, uh, basically most of the British Army or a big chunk of it led by uh, Henry Clinton, Lord Cornwallis, but also accompanied by General Howe, turns the American flank at Bedford Pass. Here we see Cornwallis with the left division of the British Army, accompanied by Howe, turning Washington's right flank. And when he gets word of it at first, Washington laughs it off, which you know doesn't really, doesn't speak well for him as a commander. But once uh, he hears the sounds of combat, he gets reports, He's able to, to act quickly, and uh, we'll see him turn a potential disaster into a, well, just yet another defeat in the annals of the Continental Army. Yeah. But the Army does acquit itself well. Uh, we see at, at Sandy Hollow uh, the willingness of Continental soldiers to counterattack against, against the British, which I think is really a demonstration of their skill, but also of their officers. We see... We see um, Nathaniel Green execute a giant L-shaped ambush on the British as the, as they're pursuing the army as it breaks away. And Green's using his entire division of Virginians. That must have been a sight. Mm. The army withdraws. <clears throat> Yet another um, failure at Germantown in October of 77. Finally, we fast forward to uh, move forward to November. And the army's drawn up on a ridge line at White Marsh. 
Washington is hoping for Howe to make an attack. His troops are fortified. He wants Howe to make this attack. He's got visions of another Bunker Hill running through his mind. And this is this kind of speaks also to, um, I think, to Washington's, frankly, rather mediocre tactical skills. He always he was always wanting a frontal assault and very rarely paying much attention to his flanks, which is why he gets surprised so often. Hmm. How marches up, observes it, looks at it, entrenched Americans. Now, I remember this play. I don't want to do it again. He's, and Howe has got to take care of the most uh, precious commodity he has, the British soldier. So uh, some skirmishing takes place, and Howe retires. It's now that Washington um, begins conducting, or he has been conducting really since October, a series of councils of war with his generals on what the Army's next move should do. And it's not so much a sign of Washington's indecision. Rather, it's a sign of Washington trying to test ideas and see if there were options available and to weigh them. You know, we have to, we have to remember that the size of Washington's staff, and that includes his secretaries, his aides to camp, the, uh, the engineer and other officers such as that, they were far smaller than the staff of a modern army brigade. Hmm. Wow. So Washington is shouldering most of the responsibilities that would be shouldered by dozens of officers and senior non-commissioned officers. He's carrying a burden on his shoulders. So the, the, the councils of war serve as a way to test ideas, but also to see what am I missing? And so we hold the series. Do we wage a winter campaign, which sounds like absolute madness? You've just lost the campaign for Philadelphia. The British are enjoying Philly. You're not. We, we're going to wage a winter campaign. But think about what they'd done the year before in the 10 days. They counterattacked at Trenton, bagged nearly an entire Hessian brigade, fell back, returned, fought the second battle of Trenton along Assunpink Creek, withdrew in good order, mauled a British brigade under Charlie Mahood at Princeton, and then retired into winter quarters. I mean, this was, I'll tell you what, in terms of tactical prowess, this was Washington's shining moment. He really showed what he had learned at this point. And he's the one who's actually running most of it, leading most of it, instead of delegating a lot as he often did. So why not this time? We have an army that's got officers that are more seasoned, soldiers who've withstood combat. We can do this. But comes the, the necessary questions. If we succeed, then what? Where do the British go? What do we do? If we fail, then what? What are the effects? What happens to American honor? In other words, reputation. And the Americans are desperately looking for friends in this fight. What happens to continental currency, which was going from bad to worse? Hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the generals discuss a myriad of things. And I think it really shows Washington at his best as a strategic thinker. He's gets, he really got the big picture. Ultimately, they decide on entering the Great Valley, which is where Valley Forge is located. And Valley Forge is basically, like all compromises, the best, worst decision that could be made. 
Nobody's happy about it, but it it scratches the itches that need to be scratched. It's close enough to Philadelphia to make sure that British pretensions to authority in southeastern Pennsylvania don't go unchallenged. It's close enough to represent a threat to the British. It's far enough away that a surprise attack cannot be mounted on it. Tactically, it sits on high ground. And something that I, uh, I, I would urge people to think about, and uh, I do this in my Valley Forge staff rides. In fact, I executed one just last week with a, uh, with a seminar, is to think of Valley Forge as FOB Valley Forge, Forward Operating Base Valley Forge. Get rid of all the trees that are there. They're gone. Start looking at this as a military post, a place from which to project power, a position at which to consolidate and mass combat and logistical power. The Army's doing, was doing all the stuff that a modern day Army would do. It's conducting patrols. It's searching for intelligence. It's looking for combat. It's trying to supply itself. These are all things that my students at the War College, colonels with 20 years or more of service, understand because they've gone through it. So Valley Forge becomes the best worst place available. And the irony, of course, is that these soldiers are sitting amidst the land, a land of plenty and they starve. Hmm. That's what I was wondering, Rick, when we talk about feeding this army. Uh, first question I know a lot of my viewers <clears throat> are going to want to know is what are they eating before they're going out into the countryside uh, in, in massive quantities? And two, what does that countryside look like? What potential does that have for these men? Why have a grand forage through this area? Sure, sure. You know, um, th they've been prescribed a, a diet that's heavy in proteins and carbohydrates. So uh, something like a pound, pound of beef, pound of bread a day, um, smaller portions of rice, peas, um, dab of butter, sometimes uh, milk. Uh, and it it is more often than not that they don't get that. So they're trying to feed themselves with whatever is at hand. There's a chain of magazines established throughout the country holding um, food, we, uh, so being preserved meats, fish, rum, beer, uh, flour, you name it. There's the one at Elk, which the uh, the Army will set about trying to reconstitute as quickly as possible. There are other smaller magazines in, in uh, Reading and Lancaster. The problem is the transportation system. It, the Army requires something like 113 wagons per day. There are only eight wagons in camp. They can't get enough uh, volunteers to to drive wagons. You know, these are farmers. These are um, <clears throat> mechanics. These are men who need to earn a living. And doing this free stuff, as it were, on behalf of the army, doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't put food on my family's tables. And so I'm not damning them, but they have their own self-interest to look out for. And uh, so, so the army suffers because of the collapse of the transportation system, which was uh, under the wagon master general who fell under the quartermaster general, but also because of the collapse of the commissariat, the commissary general. I mean, these are th these two main engines of continental supply. 
they're just they're shambling, staggering wrecks for for all eight years. Only for a few times do they actually function well, but that's um, that's more often in the breach. Mm. And as I said, soldiers suffer because of it, and so they're they will get whatever is sent forward. Often they find that the food that they've been sent it's unfit to eat. There's there's uh, there's one account of uh, barrels of preserved meat being opened up at Valley Forge when the troops arrive and uh, soldiers are looking forward. Finally, I'm going to get something to eat. And the inspectors look at it and condemn it. It's inedible. There's another case of uh, with uh, uh, Smallwood's division of Marylanders holding ground at Wilmington, Delaware. Fresh cattle. They begin to slaughter it. They discover that the cattle is dying on the hoof. I believe that it had rinderpest, and so it's a wasting disease. You know, these are this is these are basically bovine zombies. Mm -hmm. The cattle get slaughtered, and the the carcass is tossed into the Delaware River. The soldiers mm -hmm. see something like one hundred head of cattle go downriver. Mm. So they will. Um, try and feed themselves as best they can the commissariats it's not through lack of trying but they're working with a structure that's designed to prevent the growth of military power but really only hampers the energetic exercise of purchasing food and feeding soldiers mm. you talk about that uh, preventing the growth of military power uh, that goes back to Congress, right? Being afraid of a standing army uh, in some cases where they're like, we just don't trust having a standing army at times uh, in our midst because of what the experience was with the British. Absolutely. And, and there, uh, one of the things that, that, um, that I, I, I love uh, about uh, teaching at the, at the war college is we've got these a couple of these things called golden threads. So things that should run through the entirety of the seminars, no matter which department teaches them. One of them is historical mindedness. You know, and is it that we want our students at the War College to become historians? No, because that's where you have people like me. <laughs> but we want them to understand um, the past or something about the past in order to get them to think more broadly, deeply, and sensitively about their future opponents about our allies but even about ourselves you know the more that they can understand themselves us our partners our opponents perhaps future enemies the better planners and advisors and leaders they become in the strategic realms so congress was very historically minded it remembered how cromwell had ruled england and ireland through his army mm. it remembered even though it really wasn't the case, it remembered how Charles II, but they believed that Charles II was trying to rule through the army. It remembered General Monk in 1660, who used the army to help restore the Stuarts in 1660 and brought Charles II back. It had a historical memory, and historical memory is not quite history. You know, it's the past as we think or wish it was, something like heritage. It remembered um, James II and believed that he was trying to rule through the army as well as Catholicize the country. And so all of these things fed into 
the education, the worldview, and the mindset of the delegates of Congress. And so anything that would allow military power, be it at bayonet point or be it through uh, currency, through purchasing power, represented a threat to liberty. And the way they saw it is that uh, liberty was feminine, delicate, and always needed to be safeguarded by the people against power, which was male and grasping and always seeking to overpower liberty. And so they, the Congress set in motion with the best of intentions, a series of uh, regulations meant to prevent the growth of this power when in all actuality, it hampered the ability of the commissaries to do their jobs and to support the army. The result was starving soldiers. Hmm. When did this idea of the Grand Forage start to really take effect and say, you know, we have to go do this or else? And this is um, this uh, is really something of a pickup game. In February, Washington rides to Smallwood. Uh, you know, the army's really in bad shape. If we don't feed it, it's going to dissolve. In other words, the soldiers are just going to say, you know what, to hell with it, I'm leaving. You have not lived up to your part of the contract. Therefore, my part of the contract is void. This is a very American attitude. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, the mutinies that, uh, that, were, that were staged uh, throughout the war were not to support the enemy. They were because, hey, Congress, you haven't lived up to your part. Hey, Army, you have not lived up to your part of the contract. So these are very American. These guys were citizens, temporarily soldiers. They were always citizens at heart. But um, Washington believes that the soldiers will either uh, desert or he may be forced to disperse the army into the back country, you know, somewhere around Reading. And what that does is surrender the initiative to Howe and the British and to the loyalists in this contested area between Philadelphia and Valley Forge, this 16, 17 mile gap, but also the surrounding areas, Bucks and Chester County, counties rather. And so it's a strategic imperative that the army hold its position. And so he issues orders to Nathaniel Green to gather about 1400 soldiers Initially, he'd been thinking about um, uh, Anthony Wayne, who's a local boy, but this mission's far too important. And Green, please, Hamilton fans, don't get upset. <laughs> Daniel Green's his go-to guy, his real right-hand man. Mm-hmm. If I need it done, I send Green. And uh, Green cobbles together this ad hoc, uh, this pickup team, if you will. We don't know the names of the vast majority of the enlisted soldiers. Sadly, their names um, either have, have gone missing, muster rolls don't exist, um, or I just I haven't been able to discover them. Been able to identify most of the officers who were on it, though. In any case, uh, these 1,400 soldiers march out on the 13th of February, and their job is to scour the countryside and send everything edible and valuable back to camp. Green's ordered to give uh, promissory notes, um, receipts, take accounts of who you visit, where you go, what you uh, what you impress. He does this, but after a while, uh, people start to hide their goods, and Green's had enough of it. He decides, fine, if you're going to make me uh, and my soldiers look for it, I'm not even going to compensate you with nearly worthless continental dollars. 
I'm simply seizing it and not even giving you a thank you for your lack of interest in continental defense. Wow. He writes back to Washington, I hear their cries, but like Pharaoh, I harden my heart. Green's a Quaker. He's an apostate Quaker and one tough customer. Mm -hmm. he, he orders, it in one case, a couple of uh, local farmers um, uh, triced up, shirts stripped, and their backs uh, receive 100 lashes in the Pennsylvania winter because they have been trying to bring in goods to British lines. Green will have none of it. Mm. So he operates in southeastern Pennsylvania, decides to cut Anthony Wayne loose with about 300 soldiers. Wayne meets up with uh, Commodore Barry, uh, with what, who commands what remains of the Continental Navy on the Delaware River. And these two work hand in glove. I think that I think that they were brothers of a different mother, different mothers. They they are just uh, the, the 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 aggressive, smart action guys that you want on your team. But they'll um, head out, cross the Delaware. Wayne starts foraging in New Jersey. By the way, you might be wondering, what's the British Army doing? Mm -hmm. It's been foraging. It's spent most of its winter looking for food. Uh, that's one of the problems that strikes the British. Most of its supplies come from overseas. And the British Army's rule of thumb was to have about six months of supplies on hand. It only attains that, I think, three times during the entire eight years of the war. Hmm. How, though, finally sees an opportunity to strike at an exposed element of Washington's army. And so he dispatches the uh, the Light Infantry Brigade, the, the elites of the army, to Salem, uh, New Jersey. They start to move northward, going after Wayne. He dispatches another brigade-sized element under uh, Colonel Thomas Sterling, the, uh, the 42nd Foot, the Black Watch. They land at um, uh, what is today Camden, and they'll start marching inland. Their orders are, and this is to quote uh, one of Howe's uh, Hessian aide-de-camps, to have a slap at Mr. Wayne. What do both both uh, for forces do? They fall back into their old patterns. They start to forage. After some initially uh, aggressive moves, both sides start both uh, uh, brigades. So this is a, a division going after the remnants, <laughs> uh, you know, 300 soldiers or so uh, under Wayne's command, as well as maybe 100 or so. I don't know the numbers of New Jersey militia under uh, Colonel Ellis, later Brigadier General. Um, they don't go after him aggressively. They've lost what? They've lost the idea of what they're there for. And that's to seek combat and destroy the enemy in this case. And Wayne offers a great opportunity. Slowed down by cattle, his soldiers outnumbered by something like eight to one. Um, there's some skirmishing that takes place um, at uh, at the ferry, at Cooper's Ferry, which is today's Camden, and a um, couple of sharp little fights develop. Wayne, however, gets away virtually unscathed and makes his way uh, northward through New Jersey, crosses back into Pennsylvania. At around the same time, uh, Henry Lee, who commands 5th Troop, 1st Continental Light Dragoons, heads south into uh, Delaware, where he, meet, he actually meets with Wayne and Smallwood, and he goes on his merry way. And um, Lee is a superb light cavalry officer. He's attentive. He's uh, won accolades in the defense of his uh, position at Scott's Farm, 
where he was set upon by a much larger force of British light dragoons. He, um, he is something of the, um, the, the so this beau ideal, forgive my pronunciation, the French uh, of a cavalry officer. But he um, goes through and um, will work his magic, if you will, in uh, northeastern uh, Maryland, along the rivers, into Delaware. And happily, I was able to dis I was able to find his account book. It's the only one I was able to discover over the uh, years of research. And so I know who he visited, how much um, things were valued at, all the things, including the names. And this really touched me, the uh, names of the enslaved wagon drivers. And I think that that, to me, that just those names, fellows like Negro Cuff, Negro Harry, Negro Joseph, and others, really shed a light on the complexity of the American Revolution and the American War for Independence. Um, history's uncomfortable. These were the unfree serving on behalf of white political independence, uncompensated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really remarkable uh, that, that he put them in there and that we can now share that information with others. You can share that information with others. That's, that's remarkable. And it allows us to think of that idea of uh, what freedom was in the 18th century and how it has progressed or not progressed into our, our world and how we're still coping with that very idea of, of freedom and equality. Mm -hmm. uh, which one of those three uh, uh soldiers were the ones or was the one that you really connected with when you did your research or maybe it was the easiest one to follow was it was a green or wayne or or um, green's always been a favorite of mine because he was asthmatic and i'm asthmatic well, and he was just it, it, you just <clears throat> he just appeals to me where it's like wow you can do anything with being wheezy this is great <laughs> you know? that's going to be his call sign wheezy green wheezy, wheezy green yeah i wouldn't call that to his face <laughs> no no you know, I, I i will i will admit that since i was a grad student uh, when, when, when i was working on my my dissertation which became my first book um i became a nathaniel green fanboy. i confess i am one um i really uh you know, and, and he's got his faults, you know, like, like all like all humans. He does some things that I just shake my head and it's like, damn it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Uh, I really came to um, get to know and admire uh, Henry Lee. He he too. It's like I just I, there, there are times I wanted to reach through the pages and, sh and grab him by the scruff of the neck and shake. It's like, what the hell are you thinking? You know, some of the things that he did later on, he, he could be impetuous. He was impetuous at times, did some real jerk things, frankly, but um, a, a superb uh, uh, light commander. I, th I think, though, that um, the two, there were the two things that, that touched me most personally were one, as I discussed, uh, learning the names of some of the enslaved wagon drivers. Um, that really just those names forced more questions and I think exemplifies something of the kaleidoscopic nature of that struggle. And it's so much more than frankly, the silly black and white good guys and bad guys story that so many of us get fed, have been fed 
and so many want to continual continual shoveling um, today and to deny the complexity of human existence and human life. Um, it's uncomfortable. And in that, it makes the story incredibly interesting and pertinent to our ages. The other discovery were um, two small handwritten notes, maybe on the size of paper of three by five cards in faint pencil held at the Connecticut Historical Society. And there were two notes from Anthony Wayne to Captain Theodore Woodbridge of the 7th Connecticut. I don't know if uh, Captain Woodbridge's ancestors uh, exist, but here's a company grade officer, someone who's not known by, by many, if any, except his family if they live. And I was able, and I know this sounds rather grandiose, but by bringing, by putting his name to print and shining a light on his contributions in the Grand Forage uh, down in the area of Salem, I was able to, as it were, bring his memory back to life, bring him back to life through that. And um, those, both of those things really brought me great uh, personal and professional joy. Uh, we won't give away everything about the Grand Forge. Oh, by the book. By the book, that's right. Behind <laughs> that's right. He's nicely placed behind <laughs> behind Rick there. Uh, but what was the legacy of this act, Rick, as a whole? I mean, I'm sure it it really did a number on the uh, environment around there, as far as like the environment of the people and and the farms and such. What what was that effect? Because we have to remember, not everyone was for the revolution. Uh, it seems like it's almost in thirds. Like a lot of revolutions seem to be this way where a third are for it, a third are against it, and a third just go about their daily lives. What was that long-term effect uh, on either the revolution in the area or the people in that area from the Grand Forge? Well, it, you know, you, you, it, you're right about the, uh, the uh, divisions, certainly within the populace. And I don't know if it, works out quite so precisely as John Adams, uh, third, 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 but mm -hmm. yeah, there, there were three divisions within that. Um, I suspect that most of the farmers just wanted to be left the hell alone. Even if they supported the, uh, the revolutionary cause, even if they supported the King's troops, you did not want an army anywhere near you. You know, armies were and are tremendous engines of destruction. And so if you're, if you've just gotten, if you've got fence rails, new, old, otherwise, and an army comes by, if it camps nearby, your fences are gone. Your livestock, well, it's going to be filling hungry soldiers' bellies. Your orchards, they're going to be picked clean. Um, if soldiers enter your house, and uh, the Reverend Nicholas Collin at Swedes Church records this about British soldiers, he found them to be a little better than petty thieves, stealing uh, what they could for no reason other than simply stealing. Um, they this touches people's lives in so many ways. If they have simply having that presence. Having soldiers search your property 
for goods that the army needs, that's a, an incredible violation of one's property, one's property rights, one's privacy, one's feeling secure in one's own home. And it's going to anger people. It doesn't matter whose side you're on. It's going to anger you. And then if the uh, purchasing agents tell you that your horses over there now belong to the army, cattle, swine, sheep, all that flour, and here's some uh, IOUs, you're going to feel violated and angry. And it just may turn you against whatever cause you may have been supporting. So there were large numbers of people who, whom both sides termed the disaffected. They didn't really have a formal understanding, I suppose, of people who just wanted to be left the hell alone. Mm. So in their minds, it was something of a, um, a bifurcated world that either you're for us or against us. If you're not for us, um, you, you are obviously disaffected from our cause. And so the, this area, Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware, was full of disaffected people, people who just wanted to be left alone, who didn't want anything to do with anybody's army. Just go away. Don't touch us. Don't come near us. Washington was tremendously aware of this. He was tremendously aware of the close connection between uh, personal and political autonomy and independence and um, holding property, private property. And so he was very loath to exercise the full extent of his powers to order agents out to impress goods. Uh, very rarely did he actually exercise the fullness of powers granted to him by the Congress or the various states' governments. Hmm. So, Rick, when people pick up your book and read it, can they look forward to it? Well, they need to buy it. They need to buy oh, it. That, that wasn't too subtle, was it? <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's, it's it's what we do when we work for the Army. We get to the point sometimes <laughs> uh, really quickly. Uh, what uh, What is next in your your repertoire? What are you going to work on next so people know there's something else coming down? Oh, sure. Yeah, the, uh, the, the next book is a, an edited collection of letters from a soldier named Edward Ashley Bowen Phelps. He was a private in Company H, the Regiment of Mounted Riflemen. Today, uh, Troop H, 3rd Squadron, 3rd Cavalry Regiment out at Fort Hood. And um, I'm editing his letters for publication for the University Press of Kansas. And so th these are a wonderful collection of letters by an incredibly thoughtful, well-educated uh, private soldier who um, is Mr. Manifest Destiny. He dials it up to 11 and goes to places that no one has gone before. So I guess kind of a 18th century or 19th century Star Trek. <laughs> that was a, that was a poor connection. That just did not, that just stank. But now he, but Phelps, uh, uh, is really a, 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 I've spent a lot of time with him. Uh, I'm now uh, doing all the notes to him and um, touch wood. I'll turn that into the press at the end of this year and we'll see that come out. Who knows in uh, 2024, uh, early 25. Nice. That's great. It's good to know, Rick. And I want everybody to please go down to the description below to pick up feeding Washington's army. I'll have a link down there for that. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for your time, for coming on and, and talking about your book. And we can't wait for what's next. 
No, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thank, thanks so much to everyone for tuning in. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate this was a lot of fun. <laughs>